this idea that Joe talked about that he continued investigating as far as I'm aware through the rest of his life is a extremely powerful and enticing idea that I really hope to see other people continuing to explore. We just get, need to get enough different words to say, launch the missiles, right? <laughs> well, that's why there. I use pure functional languages, because they can't launch the <laughs> missiles. Ah, uh, there you go. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Bean Radio. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. I am joined by co-hosts Bruce Tate. Welcome, Bruce. Hi, everybody from Chattanooga. We've got Alex Kumos. Hey, Alex. Howdy, howdy. We have also got a very special guest today, Quinn Wilton. You may have heard of Quinn. She is uh, pretty well known, I think, in the Elixir community. I've certainly enjoyed so many of your conference talks, especially the latest one at the latest Code Beam. And Quinn these days is an R&D architect at Synopsys. Welcome, Quinn. Thank you so much, Sophie. I'm happy to be here. So happy to have you. Um, we're going to get into learning a little bit more about Quinn and what she's up to later on. But before we do, a couple of announcements for our listeners. We have got ElixirConf US coming up in Austin in October. It's going to be a mix of an in-person and a virtual event. So if you are really excited like I am to kind of get back to the in-person scene and if that's kind of on the table for you, we would love to see you there. I'm actually going to be a co-emceeing with the one and only Meryl Dakin, who you guys may recall from uh, Elixir Comp's purple carpet fame when we did the virtual event last year, and we would absolutely love to see any of our listeners there. And we also have Codebeam San Francisco coming up in November, also a mix of in-person and virtual in Mountain View, and the CFP is open, so our listeners should submit their talks because we want more speakers. Go ahead and check that out online. And we have also got, before we get too far into this, a word from our sponsor, as always, the fabulous Graxio. Bruce, what's new? Yeah, around this time, we are wrapping up the um, the jaunt through Ecto, and we'll be shifting to something I'm really excited about. I thought I'd never see machine learning in Elixir, so we're going to be spending some time with NX, and that means Axon and Livebook are going to get some play, and we're going to be excited about that. That is so cool to hear. First of all, that is extremely fast that you guys are already doing some uh, material and some educational content on NX and Axon, and I'm very excited to dig into it. I really hope that our listeners check it out. And before we move on to hearing a little bit more from today's guest and our main topic, we have got a question in the process mailbox. So we had asked you guys over Twitter, as always, hit us up with your questions, questions for the host. You can just tweet at BeamRadio1, hashtag process mailbox, and we will answer your questions. So we've got a question here from Adolfo Neto, who wants to know, do you think that Erlang and the Beam suffer from too much focus in the community on Elixir? What do you guys think? I think that we should let Quinn weigh in on this one. Yeah, me too. This is actually a question that's very dear to my heart, especially in recent history. Uh, for anyone who follows me on Twitter, you may have noticed that a huge focus of mine in the past few months has been kind of devouring all of the writing that Joe Armstrong and Robert Verding and Mike Williams have put out in, wow, I guess the past like 35 years of them working on and within and around the Erlang ecosystem. And something that's really stood out to me from a lot of this writing is how much context there is that's been missing from a lot of Elixir resources that I've consumed myself and that I see others sharing just in terms of why different features have come about in Erlang, 
what purpose they originally served and how they have been used in telecom projects or finance projects or other projects that people have been relying on the tooling for for the past few decades that just doesn't get a lot of coverage in the Elixir community. And I think there's a lot of information for all of us to gain from kind of going back to our roots a little bit and seeing what all of the masters before us have done with the tools that we're relying on today. Even just going back to Joe Armstrong's thesis from uh, 2003, I wanna say it is, it covers all of the history for how Erlang came about along with the motivations for basically every design decision within the language. And as a primarily Elixir developer, reading a lot of that information has given me such a better understanding for how I'm intended to use the tools provided to me. And I really think that basically anyone in the Elixir community could benefit from going back to some of these resources. I don't know if any of you have anything to add about that, but I really cannot recommend going back to some of these papers from the early 90s enough. Yeah, and I think not just the papers, but it's just just the the general ideas that are kind of wrapped up there. The idea that even even the supervisor, right? It's such a small idea. Rather than start a process yourself, go through an intermediary, right? And then you can inject other abstractions on that, like well, you can give them a name other than a pin, right? So that when something dies, uh, it's it's an easy process to kind of look it up and and go on. Um, but just those, there are so many tiny, wonderful decisions that were made along the way that kind of enabled and, and really smoothed out the, the experience that, that we have every day with the Elixir stack. I very much agree with that. And also, if you know what's, what's right under the hood, it's, we'll, we'll see fewer of those libraries that, that essentially wrap up, hey, I wrote this great thing. Well, no, you just called this Erlang feature, one one function deep, and and you wrapped it, and probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, absolutely. I I I can't echo that enough. Um, especially what you said about going down to the internals and understanding how this stuff gets put together. As someone coming into the ecosystem from kind of a high level perspective, it's easy to look at OTP and the Beam VM and everything around it as being kind of magical, and Treating, as if it, treating it as if it's doing things that are beyond us mere mortals and that we can't do in any other language. Uh, it's only possible because it's been provided to us by the OTP team. But if you actually go back and look at the evolution of these features and how they're implemented, the core ideas, I'm not going to say aren't complicated, but they're simpler than you expect. And I think that having that grounding and both how they were originally conceived and how they are currently implemented uh, has paid off personally in terms of understanding myself how to construct better OTP systems and in terms of how to reason about other systems that I'm engaging with. And I, I just, I really think that everyone can benefit a ton from learning more about how the Beam VM is implemented and how these design decisions are actually being provided to us. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I had, so I sort of came from a Ruby background. Uh, you know, that was the first programming language I learned, very firmly grounded in OO. And I also am a bootcamp grad, so I don't have, you know, a computer science background where I was able to really dig into some of the history of some of these languages and, and the internals. And so for a long time, and maybe sometimes these days I still feel this way, but for a long time, 
that stuff felt very inaccessible to me. And coming into Elixir, I loved learning it. I felt like I could be really productive in it, but I was still kind of intimidated to peel back those layers, like you guys are saying, and go under the hood. And then I had this experience, this was maybe like two years ago, and I don't know why this came up. It might've been in my book club at work when we were reading uh, Bruce's earlier book, uh, Designing Elixir and OTP. And it just sort of occurred to me that talking about Elixir concurrency was a phrase that I would throw around a lot. Oh, Elixir's so great, you know, it's so concurrent. And I had basically no idea what that meant or how it really worked under the hood. So I decided to kind of do a deep dive and I read some of the, uh, you know, Learn Use of Erlang and even going back to some of those original papers that would have come out, uh, you know, decades ago at this point. And I was surprised by how, yes, it was complex, but I was able to grok it. And I felt like I learned so much from even reading these original documents. And I kind of came out of it and I put together a blog post on concurrency and, and uh, Erlang and how it works on the beam under the hood. and. It was such a rewarding experience. I felt like I got so much out of it. And I, I don't do that as often as I'd like to. And I would really love to see, especially people that come from different backgrounds or are, who are maybe more beginners like me, uh, feeling like you know you are empowered to go and learn that kind of stuff and, and spread it around a little bit. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool that along the way, as you as you kind of led with the Elixir book, but then you snuck in an Erlang book. It was was that Fred's book, the um, Erlang and Anchor? I think it was. Uh, right? I think I was learning you some Erlang for great good. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fred's book. Yep. Yeah, oh, that's, a, so that's good. a great book. First of all, it's just hilarious, and the illustrations are fantastic. Um, Fred or Bear. So we're definitely going to put this in the show notes if anybody hasn't checked it out. And it's just such a great resource for. I think everyone, right? I, I don't know any Erlang other than, you know, I work in Elixir, but it was very approachable. It was very accessible. And I feel like I learned so much just from reading different the different sections of it that I did. I actually love that book by Fred. I read it when it came out and it was one of the things that got me excited about Erlang because it's based on a book I read as a teenager called Learning Some Haskell for Great Good that was one of my first introductions to functional programming and really introduces these concepts well. I was really struggling to actually figure <laughs> out Erlang and get it working on a Windows machine back in the day. And then it was probably a good 10, 15 years before I ever touched Erlang again. But that book is just such a treasure trove of information. That's actually one of the things I really enjoyed when I was doing the uh, the Elixir tip series on uh, on Twitter was diving into the Erlang docs and just finding kind of these esoteric but very very useful things and and kind of surfacing them for for easy consumption from an Elixir perspective. So like uh, uh, you know the digraph module, uh, Q module, things like this where you may feel the need to reach for a third party uh, library, you already have it uh, provided to you. So yeah, I definitely think. It's very beneficial for Elixirists to dive into Erlang and, and, and see what tools are at, the, at their disposal. All right. On that note, we've already heard a little bit from you today, Quinn, but we would love to hear a little bit more. So one thing that we always love to ask our guests when they come on is to just tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, what you're working on now, what you're involved in, and in particular, how you got into Elixir and the Beam ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so... As you all know, I'm Quinn. Um, I have been working in Elixir for about eight years now, actually. I got into it pretty early. Um, at the time, I was working as a malware reverse engineer, actually, at a security company. And I was spending my time reverse engineering malware and then doing cybercrime investigations, trying to uh, track down the groups that were producing and distributing this malware and so on. 
but I had a coworker who saw that I was getting really interested in Go actually. And uh, I was super excited about the concurrency and about how easy it was to parse binary formats and so on. And he pointed out to me, hey Quinn, you really like programming languages. You really like parsing and you really like concurrency. And I know that you think that Go is great for these things, but have you ever heard of Elixir? And I hadn't, but I checked it out and basically immediately fell in love. And when I left that job a few months later, uh, one of my primary criteria for finding a new job was finding a place that would allow me to continue writing Elixir. So I really focused on trying to make that happen and basically just became super embedded in the community from that point. That was probably 2012 or 2013 or so. Uh, I've only recently started getting more involved in the community in a more public sense, but I have been working in the ecosystem for about eight years and have been trying to apply it, again, still in the field of security. That's kind of always been my passion. I learned programming as a kid, hacking online games, writing bots for games and things like that. Um, but now, like you said, I'm an R&D architect at Synopsys, and I'm using Elixir to build automated security scanners for APIs. So my current project is uh, using Elixir to write an analysis engine for REST APIs that reads in specifications for the APIs and then tries to determine uh, dependencies between the different endpoints so that you can construct workflows that link all those endpoints together and use them for stateful fuzzing. So I have a uh, security scanner that I've written in Elixir that uses this information to look for things like SQL injection or cross-site scripting vulnerabilities in APIs and web applications and so on. And that's really been where my focus has been for the past couple of years. Uh, but beyond that, my interests in software tend to fall within programming languages and compilers and that sort of thing, which is where a lot of this fascination with Erlang's history comes from. It's funny, Quinn. So I, I, I met you through actually one of your colleagues. I think I was given one of these panels that, um, in, was it 2020? I think it was like the very last conference before yeah. we shut down, right? That was a Codebeam San Francisco and... It was the last time I left my house for a year. I remember I was on my way to the conference when I got an email from my work telling me I was no longer allowed to go and I just pretended not to see it. Right. So I, I remember that that was such a striking moment for me because um, I was it was one of these things where um, you know all these speakers were dropping and Francesco said, could you do something? So I basically thought of a punchline that an, an answer that I wanted, I thought of an interesting question. And then I said, well, wouldn't it be great to just let the audience make the point? So I just did all these like really brief interviews. And um, so one of the, the, one of the people that I thought was one of the most interesting, I, I, I said, well, you know, so the, the punchline that I was looking for was pro you learn programming language languages to get better at the language that you're already using, right? And, um, and, but I asked, I asked, so how did you learn to program? And, um, and so the, the guy says, you need to talk to her. She's, she's the most, she's the brightest programmer I know. And, you know, the kind of, you know, all these kind of glowing, glowing moments. So I said, well, I, I need to go talk to her. So we, we, we talked and I think that we've um, stayed in, in contact ever since, right? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed 
meeting you, I feel like we have both learned a lot from each other. And that coworker of mine that you were spoken to was not doing themselves justice. That's my colleague, Aaron, and they are one of the most brilliant people I have ever met. <laughs> Wonderful. I will say uh, that the part of your story where you talk about like almost learning go before being pulled in, dare I say, the correct direction definitely resonates with me. Um, I don't know if you've like listened to many of our episodes, but for any of our listeners, they probably won't be surprised to hear me say elixir over go. I can't find anything to disagree with in that statement. <laughs> yeah, so interesting, all the security stuff that's in your background. I feel like, I don't know, the more that I learn about what you're working on, the more uh, just <laughs> impressed I am. I think it's so cool. Um, you. But your talk, yeah, yeah, no, of course, your talk at Codebeam was so great. But before we get too far into that, um, I do have one more kind of intro level question for you. If any of our listeners have yet to visit Quinn's website, which is just quinnwilton.com, I highly recommend it. It's just an amazing throwback to uh, a simpler period of time on the internet. You've got like this galaxy background, you've got this fantastic comic sans plot, you've got Avril Lavigne instrumentals playing in the background. And I feel like it's so nice to be able to take the time to kind of bring some of that just like fun to the stuff that we work on and how we represent ourselves as technologists. So um and yeah, a blinking really font actually, yeah the there's blinking a blinking font, font. yeah, yeah oh, i remember what? right i didn't want to use any javascript but i need a javascript to either get the marquee or the blinking i can't remember which <laughs> sorry i didn't catch your question oh no just like why what inspired oh, you to uh, make such a fantastic website honestly i i think you kind of answered that yourself when you were talking about my website i I miss the internet that I grew up on where people had MySpace pages and GeoCity sites and they expressed who they were through these personal web pages that were entirely unique to them. The days before LinkedIn profiles and Facebook pages and basically before companies were telling us how to express ourselves. I, I really miss that aesthetic and the way that the internet enabled people to show off their true selves like that. And so that's something that I like to do through my own personal website, even if it is not professional and potentially costs me a job one day. Uh, and I just really enjoy when I see other people doing the same thing. I think that might work for you the other way around, Quinn. I, I've been kind of surprised by that. I. I have had more people tell me they like my website than not. <laughs> the main exception, which I think would surprise absolutely no one, is that every time my website or one of my blog posts ends up on Hacker News, there is a deluge of people complaining about the fact that my font is Comic Sans on a starry mm -hmm. background. I am so glad <laughs> you brought that up because what I was going to say is I think, you know, I've had a similar experience when I write posts on my personal blog that I, you know, I try to make them a little bit more fun. I'll try to put in like pictures that I enjoy. And if it ever ends up on Hacker News, there's guaranteed to be like a commenter or two that are kind of down on the thing that I enjoy the most about it, which is making every it single time. Fun. Yeah. Like I recently wrote a post about um, like an Elixir adoption experience that I had with another one of our co-hosts who's not here today, Steven, maybe about two years ago on a project we were working on. And 
you know, I put a lot into the article and then I was kind of done with the article and I was looking at this wall of text and I just thought to myself, this will not do. And so I just grabbed, you know, a ton of stock images, not because I was trying to like lean into a corporate vibe, but because I quite enjoy stock images and I've got like one that had this nice map on it and another one that was balloons. And I just think they're really fun. And of course, you know, this stuck in my, in my brain a little bit, the few commenters that said, oh, you know, those stock images, whatever. I was actually the most proud of the stock images. They really in that article. do stay with you. There's probably yeah. a dozen positive comments on your article and it's that annoying mm -hmm. comment about the stock image that keeps you awake at night. Totally, yeah. So I'm such a huge fan of your website. Thank you, um, I appreciate that. Yeah, I think it's really cool. Especially, yeah, especially because there's kind of a stigma and it might just be internal in how we present ourselves uh, as technologists, maybe in particular, like as, as women technologists, it's got to be like a certain way if you're going to be taken seriously. So to kind of just say like, screw that, you know, this represents me. I love that. So thank, thank you, you for doing that. Yeah. If you ever uh, want to form a web ring, we can link to our sites at the top. <laughs> right. Yes. So without much further ado, I would love to introduce the topic for today's episode, the main topic. Quinn, you actually touched on it a little bit when you were telling us about what you've been up to lately at Synopsys, but I want to talk about this theme of designing abstractions in Elixir. And I think Elixir sits somewhere between being a static and a dynamic language with it leaning towards being more dynamic. So we've got things like struct keys and behavior implementations, which are applied at compile time, but some of Elixir's most powerful features like pattern matching we know are only possible because of runtime type checks, which is what makes Elixir dynamic. Um, Elixir also does give us some ability to implement polymorphism with protocols, which I know was a really big topic in your recent Codebeam talk. Uh, it's a powerful, powerful tool for designing abstractions in Elixir. So I want to kick this off by actually pulling the Barbara Liskoff quote that you started off that talk with because it really, really struck me. And the quote is, we believe it is helpful to associate two structures with a program, its logical structure and its physical structure. And what I want to do today is dig into the ways in which Elixir is either uniquely or especially well situated to adhere to this principle. How do we think Elixir lends itself to designing beautiful abstractions? Um, protocols definitely come to mind, especially because I learned so much more about them from your CodeBeam talk. They're one of the starring players. Uh, in that talk and in the work you've been doing, I believe at Synopsys, protocols help you separate out the logical structure of your code from the physical structure, and they have lots of other benefits besides. So I'm going to kind of stop my little monologue now, and I would love to just hear from you, Quinn, on how your team was able to use protocols along with some other features and tools to quickly produce prototypes and design Elixir abstractions in what sounds to me at least like a really complex domain. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Thank you. Um, so I'll just provide a little bit of background first, but for anyone who's interested in hearing more information, I cover this in a lot more detail during my CodeBeam talk. Uh, it's called Atlas Flexible Software Composition Using Protocols. And basically the frame story for this talk was a project that me and a few members of my team delivered last year. We had recently been acquired by Synopsys, and as part of that acquisition, they wanted to start integrating a lot of the different security tooling that they had in their portfolio together, where previously a lot of this tooling provided its own web application and therefore its own reporting interface. So we started working on a project that was called Atlas that was essentially meant to aggregate reports from all of these different services and display them in one place. 
On its own, Atlas didn't perform too much functionality and was mostly responsible for calling out to a ton of different services and then combining their results together, serving those results over a GraphQL API and then displaying that on a front end. In our case though, there was kind of an additional problem at the back of my mind, which was that we were working at a Java shop now and we were all Elixir developers who wanted to continue writing Elixir. Uh, Synopsis wasn't necessarily against that continuing, but they were wary for hiring reasons, training reasons, and so on. And so I really wanted to demonstrate to them that Elixir was our secret weapon and that if they wanted us to continue delivering value effectively, they should continue allowing us to write Elixir. So uh, when they estimated the project, they said that they'd give us four months to complete it. And I was kind of a terrible employee and I told them that I would do it in one month if they let us use Elixir. I think I might've said six weeks. I think one month would have been cutting it, but this meant that we had to work very quickly. <laughs> and one of the big problems here was that first off, we only had three people. Uh, so that's basically one person working on the front end one person working on the back end, and then one person doing everything else. And then the second problem was that a lot of these APIs that we were calling out to through Atlas didn't actually exist yet. So that third person who was doing everything else wasn't even going to be working on Atlas. They had to work on all these other products to expose new APIs. This meant that under a normal development pace, it would be very difficult to get something up and running within a couple of weeks when we didn't even have the services available to us yet that we were going to be calling. So the way that I got around this was by using Elixir and a couple libraries that I'll talk about in a moment to essentially build a fully functional model of the entire cluster of services that we were working with that we could then use to automatically generate mock data to be returned from the GraphQL API and then used in the front end. And what this meant is that we could do all of our prototyping entirely in Elixir without leaving that repository as we explored their domain, changed interfaces, modified the API, experimented with new types and so on. And having all of those changes automatically flow into the front end uh, without basically any other additional integration work for us. But then once all of that was done, it meant that we were very well positioned to essentially replace those mock implementations of all our services with actual clients that would call out to Rails apps or Java apps or other Phoenix apps using GraphQL or REST clients and so on uh, to actually hydrate our data now with the actual live data from the remote services. So that's kind of the high level idea of what we did, but where this idea of abstraction comes in is from basically representing or thinking about that idea of the logical and the uh, physical structure of your program. And in our case, the way that looked is that the logical structure of our program was all the high level business concerns that we cared about, the different types of data that we wanted from different types of services, irrespective of where those services were or how they were implemented. So more concretely, that might be something like having a vulnerabilities service that 
it exposes functions like list vulnerabilities or compute aggregate stats against those vulnerabilities and so on. And so what we ended up doing was using Elixir protocols to define protocols for these high level business concerns, but then writing implementations of those protocols for either the real services that existed or the mocks that we were working with or whatever. So that then as we continued building out the system, we would be able to transparently swap those implementations out and have the real integrations go live on the fly. Uh, in particular though, in writing these mocks, we leveraged what's probably my favorite Elixir library of all time. It's called Norm. It's a library by Chris Keefley and it's for adding uh, essentially dynamic runtime contracts to the language. Uh, it allows you to annotate functions with their contracts. And then those contracts are checked at runtime in order to verify that your pre and post conditions are being upheld. But furthermore, it also integrates into stream data so that for your contracts, you can actually derive property testing generators to generate data that automatically conforms to the specifications for your functions. So in our case, where this ended up being really useful is that as we defined these protocols for the services that we were calling, we would also define contracts for them along with associated data types. And then we'd be able to use Norm to automatically generate mock data that we could serve over our GraphQL API to our front end. So then this meant that myself on the back end, my teammate on the front end, and my other teammate on the upstream services could all begin working in parallel without being blocked by anything. And that in particular, my teammate on the front end would be able to build these really rich client-facing UIs using mock data that was automatically and dynamically being generated by the application according to our specifications. And this made it very easy to automatically find problems with things like text overflow, for example, because we were essentially using property testing generators to fuzz our UI by just generating astronomical amounts of data, refreshing the page, and then seeing if anything looks wrong. It was a very cool combination of different technologies, and I'm absolutely going to use it again in the future. Uh, yeah, it was kind of shocking how quickly everything came together once we got some of the patterns working. Yeah, let's let's see if I can get those those four parts. So I heard the word type, but I also heard the word generate and dynamic, mm -hmm. which usually don't all go together, right? And then um, I also heard the word contract, which kind of brings it all together, right? And I, yep. I love that mix, right? So it's it's funny when when um, when I met you, I had just also met Brooklyn Solinka for the first time. And it's it's, I was writing, um, designing Elixir systems with with OTP, with um, with James Gray, who is just, he is a huge reader and and um, mm -hmm. just in, incredibly smart, um, but um, Brooke said, hey, I agree. Well, first three things, you know, first I agree with everything you said. I mean, James's ideas, right? And then the second, second thing is, um, I really like these two layers that you have, um, you know, the, the functional core and the boundary. And third, well, the paper that comes from was an, 
he got, she kind of told me what the paper was and she said, well, the layer that you didn't mention that really shows up in, um, in Haskell was, was the prototype, right? So you'd have like the functional core, the imperative shell and, and the, the abstract type layer. Um, so, you know, I've been thinking about this, this whole idea for the last year. And I think that I've actually thought that something like a norm would be better for enforcing contracts in a more dynamic language, but I, I wasn't yeah. able to put together why in, until you gave this talk. Have you by any chance done any reading on UBF? Um, so that's, yeah, that's that's the, the paper I think that- um, Oh, that okay. <laughs> pointed me to, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if we wanna go on a little bit of an interlude, but I kind of feel like UBF Definitely. is worth talking about here. It especially ties into the question from earlier too about whether the Elixir community has a blind spot with regard to some of the earlier work with Erlang. Uh, so for some initial context, uh, I don't remember what year it was, but late 90s, early 2000s, Joe Armstrong became really enamored with this idea to do with runtime or runtime contract checking of protocols. And he codified these thoughts into a paper that he called UBF. I believe it stands for Universal Binary Format. And UBF is two things. First, it is a, a data interchange format, like something like JSON or XML. But where it differs from both JSON and XML is that rather than representing data as data, it represents data as code. If that sounds very weird, it's because it is. Uh, and essentially, UBF implementations on both the client and the server implement a small virtual machine that's able to interpret UBF programs that are exchanged over the wire. So if you wanted to exchange some data structure, rather than sending that data structure over the wire, you exchange a program that constructs that data structure. And then the server on the other side interprets that program in order to get the resulting data structure. The second piece of UBF though, which really ties into what Bruce is talking about is the runtime contract checker. And the idea here was that Joe recognized that most software bugs arise from specification errors, whether that is an improperly specified specification or a deviation between the specification and the implementation. So using OTP, he realized that he could really powerfully both specify and verify at runtime the correctness of servers by sticking another server in front of servers that he's exposing through the Beam VM. And essentially that second server acts as a mediator between the outside world and the Erlang program. And it's responsible for verifying that all the incoming messages are allowed for by the protocol. And also that all the outgoing messages are similarly valid within the current state of the protocol. So when you're writing one of these servers, you use a small DSL that he came up with that allows you to represent your protocol as a state machine with all of the message, all of the match specifications for the messages that are allowed at each state, along with all the possible transitions to other states. 
And then this server basically acts as a proxy, again, between the outside world and your Erlang server. And if your server ever returns a message that it's not supposed to, or if it ever receives a message that it's not supposed to, the protocol checker is able to immediately detect that problem and log the issue. And this is very much the same idea as what something like Norm provides, but taken to an extreme. In the case of Norm, you're doing this at the function level, which is very powerful. It's very cool, but it isn't as useful as it could be because of the way OTP works, where within OTP, you are already defining your basically fault boundaries along the process boundaries within the system. So it's not necessarily the function calls that you need to protect, but the calls between processes that you need to protect, because that's where you're trying to air gap these errors in your system. And so something like NARM is very powerful for catching errors early and making sure that a process is going to crash as soon as possible to aid in debugging and testing and so on. But this idea that Joe talked about that he continued investigating as far as I'm aware through the rest of his life is a extremely powerful and enticing idea that I really hope to see other people continuing to explore. It's really cool to me. So in, in by the way, um, I've been frantically looking for the the paper that Brooke, Brooke was pointing to. Maybe if you're if you're listening, um, you know, drop us a Drop us yeah, a this tweet, is Bruce's but, quest. Yeah. If he can ever find this paper, well, the one you're looking um, for might be called "Allowing Erlang to Communicate with the Outside World." No, this wouldn't be an Erlang. This would be a Haskell. Oh, okay. Oh, it's a Haskell. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but it's it's interesting to me um, to kind of see where where these these worlds um, between dynamic languages and more functional languages collide, and the way that Joe was able to get the reliability and kind of enforce these systems, you know, hot code reloading. It's, it's, it's brilliant, right? And, and he's, um, he came up with process style, um, like checks and balances and, and enforcement and systems that other people try to attack with more general type systems. And, and it's really brilliant, I think. It's a really interesting way to think. And look at the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, much like uh, Brooke, I come from a statically typed background. I'm a huge fan of static type systems. And it's always been surprising to me how much Erlang and Elixir resonate with me, despite not being statically typed. And I think part of it comes from the fact that the entire idea behind Erlang comes from the recognition that, that hardware fails. And that even if your software is perfect and your type system is perfect and it detects every bug in your code, that's not going to help you if your computer crashes. And Erlang understood this from the beginning because of the problem and domain that it was working in. And I think that that is such a powerful idea and understanding that can liberate you from the idea that type systems are the key to solving all of the problems in software. Because here we have a dynamically typed language that is more robust and more reliable than even the most advanced and most theoretical of languages that we have available to us. And it does that without a static type system. And 
I think so much of that comes from the realization that code needs to be able to run on different nodes and that it's really the boundaries between those nodes that we need to care about. There's a quote that I really like from Joe that I think really captures where he envisioned all this stuff going and really shows off how much of a visionary he is. I hope I have this right, but it's, I have this idea in which we're connect all of the world's airline systems to each other. Imagine if every process could talk to every other process worldwide. And when I read that quote, I honestly get shivers down my spine a little bit because that's just kind of an unfathomable idea that outside of this ecosystem, I could never imagine being possible, but all of these tools make it seem like it might be within the realm of possibility. No, this, this, is, <laughs> this, is great, uh, this is a great conversation. Yeah, and I definitely want to echo the fact that, uh, that whoever, you know, whoever was a part of uh, putting together the Beam and the, the Erlang virtual machine and who worked with Joe really really did us all a lot of favors in this modern uh, uh, technical world that we live in, especially now where you know, you're running one uh, hosted solution somewhere, you're running another hosted solution somewhere. Like by default, you're running a distributed system. And a lot of times that network is not uh, not as stable as you'd like it to be. And the fact that Erlang and, and Elixir, without you even asking, will retry things or restart processes really, really helps make your, your applications resilient in this, uh, this new, you know, cloud-enabled world that we live in. Yeah, and I think it's it's so incredible to me that distributed systems, which are some of the hardest problems to solve in, you know, computer programming, are is really the reason why people can be so productive in Elixir, because it's built on this incredibly solid foundation in the Beam and on top of OTP, and because of the tools, um, you know, like the ones you're talking about, Quinn, what, with the protocols and norm and this very cool thing that I'm very much looking forward to checking out UBF. Um, most people kind of shy away from a language that leans into distribution as much as Elixir and other languages on the Beam does. But I think that this is the reason why, I mean, it's absolutely, it seems like one of the reasons why you guys were able to move so astonishingly quickly with Atlas uh, so. to, to be able to hit your incredible promise of what was it, four weeks or six weeks with just, how many engineers did you say you had three? Three full-time and then mm -hmm. someone popped in every so often. Yeah, and I think that that's something that I've really seen again and again, and it's really it really resonates uh, with the Elixir adoption story that I experienced a couple of years back. Um, Stephen and I working at the Flatiron School, we were sort of contracted by this other ed tech company to deliver a very complicated distributed uh, system to them in about three months, and we had a pretty aggressive plan to achieve that. And we had a group of people that was relatively brand new to Elixir, give or take one or two devs. And we frankly blew it out of the water. Like we completely over-delivered awesome. within that three months. And it's really uh, something that I just see happen again and again, people that are new to Elixir, people that are entering into a really complex domain who have a lot of business concerns to juggle. And then it's not in spite of it being a new language or in spite of you entering into a complex domain where you're trying to solve it with a distributed system. It's because of the things that Elixir brings to the table in particular distribution that actually lets people be so productive and lets them yeah. work so quickly. 
I think uh, too, right? Uh, I mean, Axon doesn't exist without without the the rich NIF support, right? It just makes it possible. Mm -hmm. Kind of the way that types flow through the system um, makes it in, enable enable the whole stack, right? Mm -hmm. Something that I think often gets lost in these discussions that really stands out to me is that when people hear about the benefits of Erlang, Elixir, and so on, often their first reaction is, oh, well, why do I care about easy concurrency or easy distribution? I never need those in my programs. And I think a big part of that is that it's because other ecosystems make those problems so difficult that we don't think of them as being tools available to us. And they're not often worth the complexity that they bring. But when we're building tooling and Elixir, you don't need to make a conscious decision as to whether your program is going to be single-threaded or multi-core. That's not something that you need to bake into your architecture from the beginning. And this means that all of these little pieces of your program that would probably benefit from parallelism but don't need to be parallel end up being easy to make parallel despite you not putting that initial effort in. And you see this a lot within a lot of the core Elixir tooling, where tools like the compiler will compile as many files in parallel as they can. And as a result, we end up with really quick tooling. And I think the, the sentiment that I have heard someone express, I can't remember who it was, it might've actually been Jose, is that Elixir allows you to tackle problems that you wouldn't have even considered tackling in another language. Yes, you can write concurrent programs in Ruby or in Python. You can do the same with distributed systems, but you probably don't want to. You're not going to have fun doing it and you're going to try to avoid it for as long as possible. It's funny, it kind of came up through the um, the minor leagues with with IBM, right? It's my first job out of um, out of college, and we were trying to solve the dis distribution problem around the time that the team at Ericsson was. And so we we started with this monolithic architecture called DCE, or Distributed Computing Environment. And then we kind of took that in object oriented direction as C and later Java were were starting to emerge and. So we built this thing called system object model, and then there was a distributed system object model, and then there was this cooperating standard called CORBA. But what we didn't get is that we were building on the wrong foundation, right? We didn't start slow, like, like the Erlang and, and, and really the Elixir team did too. And so um, since they chose the right foundations and, and built up, I mean, going all the way back to Prologue and all of the, you know, kind of the bits of unification that they stole, right, with, with the pattern matching and, and with Elixir going all the way back to, okay, well, you know, with a Lego, it's not enough to be prototype based. Let's back up and build on that OTP foundation. And when that happens, then it takes a while to kind of get all the tooling, but then when things start working together, they really start working together. And that's that's kind of what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I, I think that's really insightful. It's it's not just the language, it's the framework that the language provides. And that's really where a lot of the magic happens. So I'm curious to hear from you, Quinn. Um, 
just kind of regarding how quickly you guys were able to deliver it. It sounds like, you know, protocols were a big part of it, but what other elements in the Elixir or the Beam ecosystem do you feel like played a role in being able to deliver that quickly and that successfully? I think the, so in our case, like I said, we were serving the data over a GraphQL API and having used GraphQL implementations in a number of languages now, I think that Absinthe provides the greatest GraphQL experience I've had, uh, both in terms of defining your schemas, defining your resolvers, and efficiently implementing those resolvers using tools like Data Loader. I've used other implementations in languages like Ruby, for example, and have just not found myself able to move as quickly as Absinthe enabled. I also really appreciate the support for property testing within Elixir. This is something I didn't have time to get into in my talk a ton, but I am a huge fan of property testing, and in particular within an application like this, there's a sub area of property testing known as stateful property-based testing that is incredibly helpful for these sorts of problems. And the idea, I guess I'll start with property testing. Uh, property testing, in contrast to the more familiar example-based testing, where you provide specific examples of inputs along with their expected outputs, instead operates on what are called universal properties, which are basically relations between inputs and outputs that need to hold across the entire domain of possible inputs. So the example that you always see, I don't like this example, but it's the one you always see, would be that if you reverse a list, the resulting list needs to be the same length. But the idea is that you are writing tests for these properties that uh, use generators for the data involved in order to test those properties against a huge number of possible cases. But stateful property-based testing is kind of an extension of this concept where you essentially build a model of your system and you define schemas for the different events and commands that can operate against that model. And then you generate sequences of those commands and run them against your implementation in order to confirm that the implementation behaves in the same manner as the model, as the model that you have implemented. So as you can probably imagine, this ends up being very helpful for Atlas where through protocols, we now have multiple implementations of our integrations to different services. Some of those built on uh, stateful in-memory models and others being the actual uh, clients that are calling these services. So now at this point, we're able to use stateful property testing in order to automatically generate calls against the remote service while simulating those calls against the in-memory models and then essentially using that model as an oracle for the correctness of the system by verifying that the real system is always behaving in the same manner as the simulated one. This is something that traditionally is not easy to do, but using proper within Erlang, uh, you are given basically all of the tools needed to set up this infrastructure. 
there's a really great example of this in practice. If you look at Chris Keefley's Menta library, it is a small uh, implementation of a key value cache with TTLs. And he uses stateful property-based testing uh, in order to verify the correctness of that cache. And I think it's a really cool code base that shows off the techniques really well. They're also talked about in uh, Fred's latest book, I believe, called Proper Testing. Awesome. I'm going to grab all of those uh, resources for our show notes. And I do want to just kind of pull one thread of what you said in there. I think you used the phrasing. Uh, this is something that traditionally is not easy to do. And I think that that is the theme with Elixir and the Beam, right? This is something yeah. that is traditionally not easy to do. You don't necessarily want to do this in other languages and frameworks. And all of a sudden, it becomes not only possible, but uh, actually a joy to accomplish in Elixir and on the Beam. Not everything is easy in the language, but the hard things are. I love that. Not everything is easy in the language, but the hard things are. That is so great. Uh, I think that's actually a really good note on which to wrap up this episode. There is so much more we could talk about, but Quinn, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun. Uh, I will just kind of hand it back to you before we go. If there's any last updates you want to share, maybe let us know where our listeners can find you and if you have anything coming up that you want folks to keep an eye out for. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been really great. I enjoyed talking with all of you. I always enjoy having these conversations with you. Uh, you can find me again at quinnwilton.com. That has links to most of my social media. Nowadays, I'm mostly on Twitter. I, I think I'm Wilton underscore Quinn. Hopefully that's not someone else. I don't remember. Um, yeah, in terms of what's next for me, I'm still working out the details, but I am hoping to submit some talks to either ElixirConf or CodeBeam. And in particular, I really want to see what I can do about sharing a lot of the knowledge I've been developing in terms of Erlang's history. A big focus of mine lately has been trying to understand the evolution from Prologue to Erlang. And I really want to put together a historical treatment of basically the lineage of a lot of Erlang's features through Prologue and Strand and the Warren abstract machine and so on and just see if I can kind of wrap up all that history into a cool talk that possibly shows the implementation of some of these ideas. But all of that is very early, so I hope I'm not over-promising right now. That sounds fantastic. It sounds like our process mailbox question from earlier was- I was excited to hear that. <laughs> to, yeah, dig into some of that stuff. And as always, thank you to our sponsor, Groxia, which as you guys know by now is career fuel for programmers. Check them out at grox.io. All right. Thank you, Quinn. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Alex. And thanks to our listeners. We'll catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. Uh, I wish we could talk for like five more hours. I have so many more questions, but this was so great. Was thank great. you so much for hanging out. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad I went well. I really enjoyed it.